I'm reading Mark chapter 6 today, verses 7 to 13. 30. 7 to 30. Yeah, I was hoping for five verses, but I'm going to go 23 instead. So Mark chapter 7, uh, verse, chapter 6, Mark chapter 7, verse 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. I'm really sorry. I hope you can all laugh with me about this. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. <clears throat> for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all that had done, or all they had done and taught. Uh, so Thanks, Andis, um, for leading the church, uh, leading the service, and uh, and prayer, and uh, Carlos for uh, uh, leading the music so well, and Alice for uh, jumping off the uh, off the unexpected bat and, and uh, reading today's passage. Um, for those of us who are new and visiting, we're um, well into now our um, uh, series in the Gospel of Mark, and we've made it to chapter six. And I'll I'll, I'll summarise a little bit where we're at. Um, uh, in a moment. 
Um, but what I first wanted to say um, is uh, when, whilst thinking about this, this passage, um, I was reminded recently when my family went to the Czech Republic and uh, to Prague, and uh, we, we found out about Jan Hus, uh, who, was, uh, who was a Catholic priest, uh, burned at the stake, and, and some consider him as one of the uh, church's first reformers. And basically his crime was pointing out that the Catholic church had diverted away from the Bible. And um, when he was taken up to the stake uh, to, to be burned, uh, the uh, imperial marshal gave him one more chance to repent and recant and, and avoid um, uh, being killed. And this is what Jan said. God is my witness that the principal intention of my preaching and all my other acts or writings are solely that I might turn people from sin. And that truth of the gospel that I wrote, taught, and preached in accordance with the sayings and expositions of the holy doctors, I am willing, willingly glad to die today. At which point the executioner started the fire. Jan thought the message of repentance and turning to Jesus was a message worth dying for. Today's passage shows us the potential costs of taking out the gospel. Uh, we, see, we contrast also three leaders. We see Jesus, John, and Herod in today's passage. But it's a message as well that can change countries and can change the world. So in the beginning of Mark 6 last week, um, we sort of saw uh, that Jesus had just been in his hometown and he'd suffered the humiliating experience of not being accepted by his uh, peers and the people he grew up with. But now Jesus, at the beginning of our section, is out preaching and he sent, he's starting to send out the 12. So if you can hopefully have your Bibles with you and read along, we come to Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Originally called to follow Jesus, the disciples have been attending Jesus' college now for a few years, observing him and learning. Jesus is furthering their training by sending them out um, on a little missionary journey. They didn't quite really understand who Jesus was at this stage, but they certainly knew more than the hometown crowd uh, who rejected Jesus. So Jesus sent them out and they were happy to go. But what should they take on such a journey? Well, if you think about what would you, what would you take on a, on a little missionary journey? You'd need some spare clothes, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd need some money. You probably would take a drink bottle, maybe a little cool, a little cool saying like Jesus is the uh, water of life. Uh, you, because it's important to be dehydrated, you'd, you'd need a puffer jacket for the cold nights and, and some hiking shoes that have been well worn in, not just you, that you've just got off the, off the pack. Enough food. So you'd need to pack enough food, a first aid kit, a gas burner, compass, a little a scout knife. Now, you'd all probably need a second Gore-Tex jacket. So if it's raining, so you can keep dry, a tent, maybe a beanie and scarf with some Latvian symbols would be cool to take along. But let's see what Jesus tells them to take along. Verse 8. These were his instructions. 
Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals and not an extra shirt. Now, traveling in pairs. Okay, that's a good pickup. I missed that myself. Um, and you also, because it's good to have a buddy to, to support you and, and, and work together with you. A walking stick. Okay, I, that wasn't in my list, but that's maybe like Nordic walking, walking sticks to help, help, uh, help them walk. And I forgot before, we, we read that uh, Jesus had, uh, gave, gave them power to heal and, and cast out demons. So I guess they don't need the first aid kit. But why no bread, no bag, no money in your belts and wear sandals and not an extra shirt? Now, this doesn't make sense at all. But just like Israel, after leaving Egypt, had to learn to trust God for its food and water and protection, the disciples here are also called to trust God. So too the disciples go out as poor men, not as men of this world, learning to trust God for their daily needs, learning to trust God in his kingdom, a bit like John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark. Their ministry was also into homes, just like all of us nowadays. It's not up to Andes to do all the preaching and ministry in the church. Just because he has a theological degree, although that can help, it's for all of us to be going into homes and preaching the good news preaching the great news of Jesus. For we, as we see, some people respond to the disciples, and so too some people respond nowadays. Our attitude, in fact, for missionaries comes from passages like this. For if we are not willing to send out, it is only because we still need the kingdom of heaven to come to us. It is also too important, important to note that Jesus is teaching them something specific here. It's not a model for all missionaries nowadays, because in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, we see that Jesus tells them to go later on with money and with rations and armed to the hilt and ready for everything. So we understand that this is a specific lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples at the time. But... How are they to behave on this mission? Verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The gospel message is sweet like honey to those who accept it, but bitter to those who reject it. So Jesus instructs them to spend some time with those that want to learn more and those that will not listen. Jesus gives an image from Exodus uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Like with the Egyptians who rejected the Israelites, shake the dust off your feet and let it be a plague for them. Their rejection has eternal consequences and let their rejection not stick to your feet and influence you as you walk to the next place. And so how did it go? Verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The disciples trusted Jesus and did what he asked of them. They preached that people should repent, that is, stop, apologize to God, and turn their lives around. 
for the kingdom of the Messiah was upon them. And to prove the validity of the message and to show Christ's power, they cast out demons and healed people. It is interesting to note as well, there is no tally of how many houses they visited or how many people they healed or how many were saved. What is important is that the message was preached. Now, we come to the next uh, section, and as Alice was reading it, maybe you thought to yourself, well, how does, how does this all fit together? So we had Jesus sending the disciples out, and then there's this, bit, this flashback about um, Herod and John the Baptist. Like, has Mark made a mistake here? Why is that in there? You see, when there's a jump in the story, we need to take the moment to think about why is that in the Bible? Why has Mark deliberately chosen this passage? And and we get our answer when we jump ahead to verses 30 and 31. So if you jump ahead to verses 30 and 31, we discover another of Mark's sandwiches that we've seen a few times in the chapter of Mark. In a passage, ironically, where the uh, disciples were not allowed to take a sandwich with them. Verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Verses 30 and 31 remind us of our sympathetic saviour who walks with us who grieves with us, who listens to our successes and our failures and is often teaching us precious lessons through hardships. But in answering the mystery of why John, uh, the John flashback, we also see the Mark has sandwiched this story of John the Baptist here. Between Jesus sending out the 12 and the 12 coming back. And so we see John's message in the sandwich of Jesus' message going out. What was John's message? John's message was calling the Israelites to the Lamb of God, although John was rejected and ended in his death. Is Mark saying that the disciples are better preachers than John because they were successful and John was killed? No, that would be just silly. Both the disciples and John preached repentance, and both of them pointed to Jesus. Rather, Mark is showing us there are three responses to the message of repentance, a message of proclaiming who Jesus actually is. Some will accept it, spend time with them. Some may reject it, shake the dust off your feet. But some may reject it, and their rejection could be costly to your life. Hence, we are both passages contrasted so that we should not be naive and think that when we proclaim God's message, everything will always be well. But so we should not be also cynical and think that when we proclaim, everything will always go badly. So remembering that this section is about getting the message of repentance out, and the potential cost of getting this message out, 
let's look at the meat now in the middle of the sandwich. And the cost of preaching um, uh, repentance for John and the cost of receiving the message for Herod. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So the news of the disciples going out and preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons all over Israel has even reached Jerusalem. But who is this Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet that's meant to come before the Messiah, the one to point to the Messiah? But Mark's already told us that the Elijah is, is John. Maybe Jesus is just a prophet, a wise preacher who brings good news and some healing. But Mark has pointed out that Jesus is a whole lot more than that. However, Herod is sure that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. Come back to haunt him and cast judgment upon him again. You see, Herod is being tormented by a guilty conscience. But what is this guilty conscience about? What is this story? Who is this Herod? How did this all work? Well, in a true Netflix fashion, Mark gives us the John flashback. Firstly, to show us the potential cost of proclaiming the kingdom of God. And second, to show us a contrast between John and Herod and both of their responses to a message worth dying for. But before we take this flashback, uh, I have some volunteers that I, uh, that I got. Um, I'm going to give you a, a, a very brief run overrun of who Herod is. Okay, um, So maybe if we can have Herod the Great over, over number one. <laughs> then next, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, where's Herod Antipas? Yeah. And Herod Philip. You, you need to, yeah. So Herod, 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 uh, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas next to Herod, Herod the Great. Um, uh, Herod Agrippa the one, at first. And then Herodias and Salome up at the end. Okay. So uh, in the Bible, we see Herod in lots of different places. With Jesus, when Jesus was born, baby Jesus, we see Herod now. We see Herod in Acts. Are these all the same Herods? No. So let me explain with this little segment that I like to call Meet the Herods. <laughs> Firstly, we have Herod the Great. Excellent. Uh, now, I will preface this, that the characteristics of the Herods in no way reflect the people who are wearing, okay, there is no, okay. So Herod the Great, you may know him as the one who tried to talk the, the wise men into telling him where baby Jesus was. You may also have heard of him as the one who killed all the kids under two years in Bethlehem. He got his power because he was good friends with Mark Anthony. Uh, who was dating Cleopatra but got killed. Once Mark Anthony was killed, Herod the Great jumped ship over to the other Romans 
and kept his power. He had 10 wives. Okay, I didn't want to bring them all up. But including one called Doris, which I think is, is really funny because it's, it's a funny old Australian name. And at least seven sons. Among his sons are Herod Philip and Herod, Herod Antipas. Okay. Uh, you, you, Agrippa, move over here. Sorry, I didn't tell you to get You haven't made it over there yet. Okay. He also had several uh, grandchildren, including brother and sister, Agrippa I and Herodias. Okay. Now, in true Game of Thrones styles, Herod the Great killed off numerous sons, thinking that they will overtake his kingdom. And he had a plan when he was about to die, he was going to kill a bunch of Israelites so that people would actually be mourning and be sad because a bunch of people were died. Um, his last wife thankfully stopped that. Uh, but then Herod uh, the Great died and is out of the picture. Okay. You, yeah. <laughs> you could, yeah. Now, Herod Philip. Yeah, Herod Philip is the next, in the next in the line. Uh, one of the sons, okay, marries Herod, uh, Herod the Great's granddaughter, Herodias. Herodias, you're married to Herod Philip. Okay, come over, come over next to him. You're married, okay. So... So just in case you missed it, that's his niece, okay, his step-niece. Uh, he was made tetrarch, governor over one of the four divisions of the Israelite kingdom, part of Herod's, Herod, uh, Herod the Great's kingdom, but it was an out-of-way part, okay? Now, once they were married, they had a daughter, Salome, daughter, come across, into the picture, yeah, okay, Now, this wasn't, go uh, uh, Herodias was a bit of a schemer and this wasn't all going well. So what she did, she decided to drop Herod Philip and instead marry Herod Antipas. <laughs> also his niece and marrying her, her other step-uncle. So Herod Antipas... Now, this is the Herod that we heard about in, uh, with John the Baptist. He is also the same Herod that will talk, talk to Jesus uh, and uh, will mock and uh, ridicule Jesus. Okay, he's the one that yep, then became uh, mates of Pilate. Now, uh, the next one that is mentioned is Herod Agrippa I, Herodias' brother, nephew of Herod Antipas, who was sent away to Rome after Herod the Great killed his father, Aristobulus. I know, he didn't have a Herod name. That's probably why he lost it. He's Herod's great-grandson. Now, are, we, are you tracking with me? <laughs> Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, offended Emperor Tiberius. He was thrown into jail. But he made friends with the next emperor, a terrible emperor you may have heard of, Emperor Caligula. Now, Caligula put him in charge of the area previously ruled by Herod Philip. Now, unlike Herod's other, unlike all the other Herods, the Jews actually liked this one because he loved killing Christians. <laughs> uh, he did kill James. We read about that in Acts. He arrested Peter. Peter got away. But Luke uh, in Acts 12, verses 20 to 23, tells us how God struck him down because of pride. Also a great story that we read about in Josephus. 
So this is our brief introductory with the Herods. If it was a reality show, you wouldn't believe me. So we can get back to Mark 6. But before we go, which Herod is the one in Mark 6? Antipas. Antipas. Great. Thank you very much, uh, volunteers. I hope that made it a little bit clearer. (laughs) So in verse 21, we come to a party which looks like one of those American frat parties. There is drinking. There is womanizing. Herod is really trying to impress the movers and shakers that he's invited along, high officials, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee, maybe trying to keep them on side so he doesn't get beheaded or killed like many other Herods in the family. Anyway, his stepdaughter, Salome, comes in and does a dance. I think the implication is that the dance was probably a bit suggestive. Maybe some first century twerking was going on. Anyway, the wine is flowing, the dance is successful, and to show off his uh, power and authority without really thinking about what he's saying, Herod says in verse 22, Ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now the daughter goes and asks her mother for some advice. We have confirmation here that this has been Herodias's plan all along. Remember, she's a schemer that switched husbands to get better. And now, despite John, uh, despite Herod protecting John the Baptist, she has been uh, hatching a plan to kill uh, to kill John. And she has given her husband a hard choice between the two things he values the most, or well, one of the th- the thing that he values the most is pleasing people but also wanting to protect John. In verse 24, the head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod is trapped. He's been showing off in in front of all the important people and he gave his word, but suddenly he's become sober. Suddenly, there is a realisation of what he has done. Herod feels trapped and must do what he knows is wrong. Do you sometimes feel like this? Do you sometimes tell a small lie and then to save yourself need to tell more lies? Do you go to that uni party that you know you shouldn't and then to save face feel that you you should do what you don't think is right. Maybe just knowing God should be the first thing in your life. But then you think about what your time is taken up with. Maybe social media. Maybe a computer game. Maybe an escape from the everyday or that streaming service movie that everyone's been talking about. You know you should fill your mind with better things. But suddenly you don't have time for Bible study or Sunday morning, or catching up with someone from church. Unfortunately, sin, like Herod finds out, is like an avalanche. It starts with just a few little flakes, but by the time it gets to the bottom of the mountain, it can destroy houses, homes, and lives. In this section, Mark shows us the difference between John who was taking out Jesus' message and pointing to Jesus, the true king, and Herod, who was pointing to himself as king. 
John, who wanted uh, Jesus to be increased so that he may be decreased. And Herod, who wanted himself to be increased in front of his friends. John, who wore simply er simple earthly clothes. Herod, who wore royal purple. But what was Herod really like? Spurgeon gives us a list of some good points and bad points about Herod's character. Firstly, Herod did respect justice and holiness. The passage tells us that he feared John. His conscience wasn't yet so seared by life that he didn't respect God's words being preached by John. Herod even seemed to admire John's justice and righteousness. He protected John's from Herodias' schemes, and, and which was like walking with a lion that you can admire in a zoo, but you don't want to walk next, next to, unless, of course, you're Ilza. Ask her about that. <laughs> Herod did listen to John, although John's words cut his lifestyle. He was greatly puzzled. He kept listening regularly. Yet Herod doesn't avoid John, but he doesn't listen to John's big message. He doesn't listen to John calling Herod to Jesus. He may have listened to bits of advice and, and come to John and gone, oh, yeah, I can, I can put that into my life and, and I can take that little bit of wisdom. But he missed John's message of repentance and turning to Jesus. Jesus later describes Herod as a fox, cunning and sly. He was bold in front of his acquaintances but cruel to the weak, having enough God in his life to make himself feel okay, but not wanting God to rule over all of his life. Maybe some of us here also have a bit of a double life, one on Sunday and a different one in front of our workmates or university colleagues. Herod missed God's word. Like some Christians nowadays, he liked the preacher, but missed Jesus' message in the preaching. He liked John's talks, but he didn't want Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. He picked and chose the bits that he wanted to listen to and threw out the other bits that aren't culturally important anymore. Herod also had a sin in his life marrying his brother's wife, that he knew was not right, but he couldn't give up. What is that sin in your life that you are guilty about? You boldly proclaim you will not do, but haunts you. It might even bring some comfort. What comes to your mind as I say these words? Mark calls us to repent of it unlike Herod. But Herod's religion is based on fear and not love. It is based on duty and not joy. What is your faith like? Is it based on the fear of someone finding out your sin? Or is it based on the love that you feel when you realize how much Jesus has given you? The undeserved grace he has shown you. Is your Christianity based on duty, duty to turn up on a Sunday, duty to do the right thing, or is it in joy 
the joy the disciples felt as they as they left um, uh, to preach God's word. The joy that we can feel knowing that we are aliens and sojourners, even in Riga, such a beautiful place, this is not our home. Our home is being sinless and perfect in a perfect relationship with God in heaven. Herod did what he knew was wrong. He beheaded a man that he feared and respected, something that would keep on haunting him. But it seared his conscience. So by the time he got to the actual Jesus, he didn't see his words, but he mocked him. Herod thought Jesus was a resurrected John. And this means John's voice was still ringing in Herod's ears, just like it's ringing now, 2,000 years later, as a soft little whisper, yet very certain of its mark. Repent. Repent. Friends, don't follow Herod's path and miss your saviour when he's right in front of you. Spurgeon finishes with a quote about John. John did no miracle, but all things which he spake concerning this man were true. He wrote no marvellous work which astonished his generation, but he spake of Jesus, and all that he said was true. God grant that our master's servants may win such praise. When we read the Bible, we can put ourselves in the shoes of different characters. Who do you see yourself as? Are you like the disciples, trusting Jesus with your life and possessions in order to get the message out? Are you like John, willing to lose your job or lose friends because you must speak the truth? Are you happy to lay down your life for Jesus, not just once, but every day? Or are you a little bit like Herod, living to please others, wanting the praise of people who don't really care about you, experiencing life to the fullest, no matter what the cost? However, Mark keeps asking an even bigger question in chapter 6. Who is Jesus? And what is this message worth suffering for? What is this message worth dying for? It can be hard for us to count the cost. Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, was ridiculed by his childhood friends and relatives. We too can be ridiculed by our family, laughed at in our job, cancelled on social media for not supporting the latest woke fad. But Mark tells us here that the disciples were to judge harshly those that did not listen. Walk away, don't fight. But we see an even greater cost for John, who was wrongly jailed, though innocent, who was plotted against by Herodias and paid with his life for telling the truth and calling out sin, which foreshadows the cost that Jesus would pay as he was wrongly jailed and accused, plotted against by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for telling the truth. And Jesus carried our sin on the cross 
taking our sentence because we all have humiliated and laughed at God with our actions. Following the persecution and death of Jan Hus, the brethren, his followers, found refuge in Germany, where they experienced further transformation as they put in practice uh, living to love one another. This inspired them to send out missionaries, which came to the area then called Livonia, comprising of Latvia's Vidzemet region and, and southern Estonia. They spread the message, started schools, brought people to Jesus, and led to the first national song festival, which now is in its uh, 150th year, this year. It became Latvia's first awakening. They brought a message worth dying for and then changed a nation. You see, Latvia needs this message again today. And whichever country you are from also needs this message today, a message worth dying for. Similarly, despite the memory of John's beheading and the price John paid in the back of, back of uh, their minds, at the beginning of the passage, Jesus' disciples followed their dear Saviour to tell of Jesus' saving grace. Will you go out as well, though your workmates laugh at you? Will you go out, though your childhood friends might ridicule you? Will you go out, despite there are places in the world where Christians are still martyred? Will you go out, because the message of grace, the message of salvation, the message of a right relationship with God is a message worth dying for. So who do you think Jesus is? And what is this message worth dying for? Repent and turn to Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Now, originally I was going to finish here, but I was struck later by thinking about it, how Herod received his message. For when your life seems together and you're working and studying hard, and most of you are here in a foreign land, so you live well and you probably live a lot better than many of the locals, and you can feel superior like Herod. You can fill your life with stuff and experiences and feel that your life is all together. And a message of repentance can be very insulting to someone like that. You might turn to me and say, who do you think you are, Andre, to tell me how I should live my life with your homophobic, sexist, outdated cult and your imaginary man in the sky? But it's not some propaganda to influence people. It is a message designed to save people from the judgment that is to come. Herod missed this message and lived a life of guilt. He couldn't change. And John died preaching this message. So let's not be naive that it'll always be, always be fine. But there are also some homes that took the message and listened and were brought to life. So let's not be cynical in preaching the word. John was happy to die for this message. For Jesus calls us to repent and take his outstretched arm. 
wanting to pull us to him and pull us to God. Who do you think Jesus is? Take his arm. Call your family and your friends to take it as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your message of repentance and to turn to Jesus. Thank you that Jesus cares for us deeply in our everyday lives and that he died on the cross to take away our sin, that we may come to you. Thank you that Jesus was raised from the deaf, proof that we too will one day live out in our true home. Help us to take your message out into the world, a message worth dying for. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.